So I'm lucky enough to have 10 more minutes with Anastasia Marx del Salcedo. Did I say that right? Did I, get it? Did I do it? It's been, oh, a, it's been an hour almost. since you, almost. It's been an hour since you told day, me to say. Day, day. day. What did I say? Hey? Del. Del. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay, you Italianized it. I did. I, I did. I knew it was somewhere in Europe. You should get the Latin. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I was close. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, restructured names and restructured meat. And these are two very interesting technologies, probably two of my favorite, Anastasia. Uh, the first is restructured meat. And I'm going to put a quote in here, uh, which is the way the army described the first fabricated beefsteak. And I also want to say that I'm pretty sure that this is that pork patty that you almost ate on, on our main episode is restructured meat as well. So oh, you- <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, no, no doubt. <laughs> so here is the army describes it as a steak, in quotes, is highly fabricated beefsteak, which is heat-stabilized in flexible pouches, proprietary processes involving adding salt to trimmings, treating it to cover all surfaces in a heat congealable protein, mm-hmm. pressing into a mold, heating to set the protein, and then cutting into serving size. Uh, the most famous you know, not to jump ahead, but the most famous example of this is the McRib, <laughs> which is the uh, the poster child of restructured meat. Now, how in the world uh, did we get here? Um, we got here because meat is costly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it probably was one of the larger items in the military food budget. Okay. And at one point uh, in the early 60s, the Natick Labs just said, you know, I wonder if we can bring down the cost of the meat that we're buying for all the boys and girls out there. Okay. Um, so they said, well, you know, we're, what can we, oh, and actually I should, I should have mentioned that this was me. They said, what if we create a, a meat that has the texture and taste of what it, it was called a muscle cut, which are the, you know, the more, the fancier sort of cuts of meat. Um, but we use just sort of like the trimmings sure, to do that. Sure. Can we like come up with some science to do that? And this was made possible actually um, by the fact that in the early 1960s, there was a changeover in the way meat was distributed. Okay. Um, and this actually goes back to a, even an earlier military innovation, which doesn't sound very innovative now, mm-hmm. but was, which was um, cutting meat off the bone at the place of slaughter, boxing it, and then shipping it. Okay. Because mm-hmm. in the very old days, as you mentioned, are the the uh, the butcher guilds. Mm-hmm. Um, a butcher would would butcher an animal, and then the customers got pieces of that animal. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and you could you hopefully you could you line up for like the, the steaks, but you might have to end up with you know a shoulder or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Um, so in at the until uh, the 1960s, um, supermarkets would still receive um, half animals, and okay. there would be a, a butcher department. There was a butcher department in the supermarket, and the and the butchers would cut off um, pieces and sell those or package them for the store. In the 1960s, they switched over to a system where they created they boxed it at the, the site of slaughter, and they would ship out boxes all that could all contain the same cuts. Right, okay. That allowed the army to buy the cheapest cuts. Right. And then um, start to experiment with those and see what they could come up with. Um, It was actually 
kind of complicated to come up with something that didn't just taste like a little mushed up cake. Um, and it, so it had four separate um, technological sort of breakthroughs. Um, and the <laughs> yeah. first one was actually had to do with the way they, they cut the meat. They had this special flaking machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe that it was, it was a, like a, it, it uh, had a motor and went around in a in sort of um, chain the meat on the outside. So it didn't sort of collapse the tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, the second was uh, sort of an under better understanding of um, how of just muscle fibers in both uh, live and, and dead animals and how this work. The, the third was the invention of, I think you, you mentioned it um but it's essentially meat glue, yeah. um, which was, I think, was done by their partner uh, and frequent partner, which is Oscar Mayer. Yep, they have a patent um, on it. They have a patent on meat glue. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And the fourth was the um, understanding of that the addition of a, a chemical would help retain the juice a little bit more. So using all these four breakthroughs, they, they were able to come up with what you described, which is this kind of, um, they, they form, they create these flips of meat and glue them together, uh, and then they sort of press them, and then they slice them into any shape that is desired. And so by um, at the mid-1970s, they were, they were sort of doing test, testing these um, fabricated meats, as they were called then. Um, and they started out with, I think, beef steaks and pork chops and lamb chops and was it Salisbury steak? Yeah, that sounds um, right. But again, in the same the same process, which is very typical, they had a lot of collaborators. I mentioned Os- Oscar Mayer. Then they had um, they worked with some of the people who had worked on that project. Took said, "Hey, this technology could really be used in the fast food industry. Right. It will help them reduce their the, their bill. And who doesn't like that? You know, especially business." So, um, I think one of the first. Uh, customers was, I want to say it was Denny's, and then the other was McDonald's. And um, using this recipe, McDonald's came up with, uh, you know, this kind of fabricated or uh, restructured pork product, which has become the McRib. And just for those who don't know what the McRib is, it is a sandwich with a piece of meat that looks like a slab of beef ribs. I mean, they even have the shape has bones in it, but there's no bones in the mm-hmm. meat. So it's the weirdest. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> is so it's so weird. And that's not even the weirdest part about this story, Anastasia. The weirdest part about this story to me was your piece of information that McDonald's has a French trained chief chef. Uh, in their corporate <laughs> office, that was the that was the that's the fact of the podcast for me. Okay, that, that and in all fairness, I think that was the first time um, for the McRib. He, yeah, and he had a red, a, 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 a red right? Yeah. He had come over because, and they were going to sort of. He was going to produce this 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 new approach, and I think what he did actually was not so much to do with the with the McRib itself, but coming up with the saucing. Okay, um, the sauce is and good. Then helping with that shape. Yeah, the sauce is good, and then the, no, the shape is critical too. <laughs> It's very important when you have it when you have a restructured meat right. that it looks like something, right? Right. Yeah. It, I mean, look and that, so that little rib shape makes it makes it 
it makes everything. Cute. Yeah, you're right. It is critical. Yeah. I mean, that, that pork patty you pulled out. That was not that. That was very unappealing. That's exactly what you're going to get if you don't use a cute little shape for your restructured meat. You problem. need cute shapes. You need dinosaur shaped chicken nuggets. Yeah, you do. You yes, do. It's very important. Definitely. Uh, the other thing that we have to we did not cover in our first episode. And I'm so glad we get to, to come around to talk about this is powdered cheese. And you in in your book, you said something that I have thought for years. And, you know, it's kind of when you hear someone say something that you wish you had said, I'm so proud of you going on a rant for Annie's macaroni and cheese. Because I, I had a coworker who every day she would come in with an Annie's something, macaroni and cheese, some kind of microwavable meal. And she was always kind of one of these people who uh, was a little stuck up anyway. And so she always thought she was better than everybody. But she would come in with this macaroni and cheese as if Annie's organic cheese was so much better than like Kraft or something. But A, you, I always said, it's still cheese. It's still a microwavable <laughs> meal. So let's not, it's, yeah. it's still not good for you. So take it easy. Yeah. But also yeah. you mentioned that the ingredients that, that they use in the Annie's is not necessarily much better than Kraft. Uh, I, I, yeah, I love that. You made me feel better. You made me feel like I was the better person, uh, which is just petty. But I'm okay. I'm okay with that. No, no, I, 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 and I think you're referring to a piece I wrote for um, Salon a while ago, which and and I, that was when I was sort of at the height of dealing with kids and uh, Annie's, and it really drove me crazy i mean it was just like what is it with this particular brand I'm with you i did see no difference totally it's, with it, you the food they the same thing and the same smell and then i kind of looked at it and actually that was kind of my introduction into this whole um what i call industrial food not processed food because processed food is really not is an inaccurate term um and and but i did the research on that and that's how i i i looked at it very close and i was like it really isn't any different whatsoever. And at that time, it wasn't even organic. It was just like such crap. Right. <laughs> I love it. made me feel so good. Uh, but let's, let's talk about this cheese powder. I mean, it, look, in American culture, this is ubiquitous. There's hardly a product. There's hardly a snack product that does not come in some variation of cheese of, you know, coated in cheese, some flavor, be it Doritos, Cheetos, anything that ends in O's has probably got cheese flavoring in it. Uh, and this is, you know, I think this is Kraft's legacy. Cereals? Cereal? Oh, is that true? Or? God, I, had, I couldn't resist. So oh, I my God. I was thinking to myself, is there one? Cheese. Oh. Whoa, cheese flavored Cheerios. Oh. I think that's a thing. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Thank God. There's no cheese flavored cereal. Um <laughs> You know, now that someone's listening to this, you and I hold the patent on it. We do have a timestamp on this. Yep. So if that comes okay, out, that's right. That's we're right. getting a piece of Intellectual it. property it's right here. 100%. Uh, but this is Kraft's legacy. And, they, you know, they produced a cheese that was in one flavor, white. You said, I didn't know white was a flavor, but I guess it is. They have white. They have white and yellow. Oh, I, I guess so. So this is cheddar then, right? Or just cheese? I don't know. No, the, the actual difference is um, a colorant. That's it. There's no difference in the cheese. Oh, okay. And in fact, any any cheese, like that cheese that is yellow, that's just the colorant. It's a natto. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't think yeah. I realized that. So that nuclear orange is just a coloring. Yeah. Okay. Um, but they, you know, the, so the army bought all of this, this, this like shelf stable cheese you know, but in I think in 1943 they had all this excess cheese. Didn't know what to do with it. 
Um, but so then they sold it off and then that became basically cheese powder and Cheetos. But if you can tell me, how did we get to the cheese powder? Like how was Kraft able to crack that shelf stable cheese part? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So um, until World War uh, Two, again, the Big Bang, um, there had been a cheese powder, but it was a uh, a low fat version because mm-hmm. that what ha- would happen is that the fat would get rancid right. in 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 the cheese powder. So they would use like actually people don't realize like Parmesan is very low fat cha- uh, cheese, so you can make that into a powder, um, but that you couldn't make a powder of a regular cheese. And what uh, happened during World War II? This had to do with we talked about this in the um, in your episode, which is this tremendous volume of food that was being shipped overseas. And they wanted to do anything they could do to uh, reduce the the weight and and size of the the shipments. Mm -hmm. And so what they were doing was just trying to dehydrate as many things as possible, not freeze dehydration, which is um, both dehydrating and dropping the the pressure so the water goes out. But Mm -hmm dehydrating with some their, their low heat ovens. Um, and so they decided to try and dehydrate cheese. Um, but unlike many of the other items, cheese does not have any kind of internal structure. So when they dehydrated it, it turned into a powder. And they, instead of, um, you know, they said, okay, well, it, we're not going to have men eating chunks of cheese powder like we're envisioning. We're just going to send it, but we'll send this over anyway. And they packed it up into these little tins, yeah. sent it, um, overseas, and then uh, army cooks began to use it in sauces and uh, entrees and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so then, uh, you know, as was typical, a whole little industry sprang up just to support this whole cheese dehydration. Sure, um, that it was being uh, it, you know a a need that needed to be filled. And when the war ended they no longer had a customer. So uh, at that point, and I think, I don't think that this deal was brokered by the military, it's just actually the cheese dehydrators that were left with a whole of bunch of product. And they're like, what the hell are we going to do with this? <laughs> right. They reached out to the, um, the, the, the grocery, uh, the grocers association and began to work with some of those companies providing um, the cheese as an ingredient for some of the new snack foods that they were producing. And uh, lo and behold, Cheetos appeared Three years later. Well, I think from what I remember, I think that the army ordered a bunch of this dehydrated cheese in 1943. Uh, then they have a bunch. The war ends. They got all this stacked cheese. And then they sell it back to the to the grocery industry, who then is like, well, what can we do with this now that we have all this discounted government cheese? And then they turn it into a powder and sprinkle it on Fritos. And lo and behold, you have... Cheetos, which is a brilliant name. I didn't even realize that it was cheese plus Fritos, a Cheeto. I just realized that this second, and I'm a little embarrassed because I grew up on Cheetos. <laughs> no, no, that would be that would be Chafito, Chafitos. Chafitos. Chafritos. That's not the same. Cheetos. It's a different thing. You're right. Don't worry. Uh, Chafitos sounds sounds delicious. Uh, but it, but this is the the origin of cheese powder, which covers most American foods now, except for breakfast yeah, cereals. Um, but it's that, that's the origin. But that, that's a category that should definitely be expanded, I think. <laughs> Cheese-covered items? Cheese-flavored cereal. 
is I really the next step in the evolution because they're adding cheese powder and everything. everything. And that has just grown and grown. Yeah, that and chili, like chili lime. Like people love putting chili lime yeah. on stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th this this powder, it's taken over America. Well, before we end here, I have to mention two things we didn't get in the other episode. I have to because one of my my one of my longtime collaborators, uh, Dr. Michael Denon, is a an expert in foam. And I learned in your book that bread is just a foam. Bread dough is is just a foam, which I thought was fascinating. You do a, white bread is a whole nother thing we didn't talk about. And hurdle technology, uh, which is what keeps you know basically every shelf stable type of bread uh, is is around because of hurdle technology. We can't go into it, but it is a series of complex hurdles that bacteria must overcome in order to take hold. Uh, it's just incredible stuff. Uh, and again, Anastasia, I want to thank you so much for taking this extra time out to discuss restructured meat and cheese powder and hopefully the combination of those two. You're very welcome. <laughs>